Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back, listeners. This is Amaya. And this is Lee. And you're listening to Femme South. So listeners, if you don't know about Femme South, if you're listening to us for the first time, we are a local podcast, book club, and blog dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women in the South and all over the world. So our book club just finished reading Soraya Chamali's book, Rage Becomes Her. This book inspired us to do host several events in the local community in the month of June, which we just finished doing. We had a panel discussion talking about women's anger, emotional freedom, and transformation. We also hosted a film screening watching the movie She's Beautiful When She's Angry. And then we did a poetry night where we looked at how to take our anger, our emotions, and channel it into something creative like poetry. So what we really saw at all of these events is that women are angry. And this book and other books that are coming out right now, uh, this emphasis in general, just in the collective on anger is really huge. It feels like it's the first time that our Society has really started to value women's anger, validate women's anger, and start to really look at how we can use anger for change in our lives. Absolutely. And I don't think that Leah and I realized that in sharing this with the community, what we were really doing is putting these things into practice for ourselves. So Leah and I really were in a deep dive this month looking at our own relationships, our own emotions, and what to do about these things for ourselves. It was really interesting. Especially when we did our panel, we were able to really intellectualize anger. We talked about women's oppression. We talked about women in art. We talked about women's psychology. We had all of these different intellectual realms with anger. But behind the curtains and in our own lives and even in our, in our own friendship, we were dealing with actual everyday anger, like how to acknowledge it to somebody else, how to receive it from somebody else, how to work through problems despite it, how to move the energy around, right? Yeah, I think the biggest thing really, I mean, for me at a fundamental level, it's how do we honor or accept these darker emotions? Really, I think in our culture, we tend to favor these lighter, more positive expressions of emotion, joy, happiness, excitement. But when it comes to things like anger, grief, sadness, 
irritation, frustration, some of these darker, heavier emotions, we tend to, you know, judge them, really, and avoid them at all costs. And this month, it was really interesting because what we were looking at was how can we embrace these dark emotions with the same acceptance as these lighter emotions? At what point can we actually hold both of them with the same value? And that's so hard. It's so hard because dark emotions are painful. They hurt. And so, of course, we want to avoid them. Of course, we want to shift and change whatever situation we find ourselves in where the energy is painful to be with. So this is really the big thing that we're looking at this month. Mm -hmm. How can we allow all expressions of human emotion in our relationships and give them value? It's so hard. Yeah, it really is. It's really challenging. And I think as women, and I think this is really true for both men and women, but mostly true for women in terms of being able to express our emotions with any kind of real um, integrity, with any kind of real awareness of how to, like I said earlier, not only give anger, but receive anger. Because it is just a back and forth. We give anger to others. We express our anger. But then... We also have to receive anger, and that's a two-way street, you know, and that's really challenging to do, to hold space for somebody else who's angry. But I think what I'd like to do before we really get into some of the solutions and the reframing, I want to uh, first just kind of go through why we're angry and some of the things that Soraya talks about in her book is, first of all, that we have a right to be angry as women. We've probably made this statement many times, but it seems as though we're, we're ready to listen, like society is ready to now listen. We have a right to be angry. And I think a lot of that's coming out of the Me Too movement. Some of the reasons why Soraya Chamali lists in her book are dealing with the objectification that we as women have to constantly deal with, the, the beauty standards, which affect all realms of our existence. Um, also, the ways in which we have to deal with the suppression of our anger because anger isn't supposed isn't sexy it isn't beautiful it isn't culturally acceptable for women to really express and we're angry because of egalitarianism in the home and in the workplace and we're which all doesn't exist oh the fact that we don't have egalitarianism <laughs> in the home and in the workplace right because we're still struggling with some of these very basic fundamental things in the home first of all and then how that then carries out into the workforce and then also she talks about harass sexual harassment, sexual violence, and the daily things that we as women have to deal with. And I think with the Me Too movement and everything that's happening in our culture at the moment, we're seeing that these numbers are incredibly high and that women have been experiencing sexual assault and violence for a long time. And it's not going to stop until we start talking about it and get angry which Soraya's book really gives us permission to do so. And it is so incredible to read. Yes. So do you want to just start diving into some of these larger concepts that she's talking about? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's see. Where to start? I'd like to start with the objectification of women and the beauty myth and really talk about how women are socialized in this area and how this area really affects 
women's placement in the world and women's bodies because she has the two wonderful chapters that are really good back to back. And those are Women Toasters and Angry Bodies. So in Women Toasters, she really talks about how women have to conform to standards that really nobody can meet. And we're all so used to it that we are just now really starting to talk about it. Yeah, I I find it really interesting because it's so normalized to see women half naked, airbrushed, perfectly coiffed, skinny, all over the media. And it's so normalized that we don't even notice that maybe we're having an emotional reaction to it. And so we might see something in the media and then maybe that evening snap at our partner or get irritated with our children and wonder where did this emotion come from? Well, if you're bombarded by all these images through the media all day long that are telling you you're not enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not skinny enough, at some point that's going to have an effect on your emotions and your self-esteem. So Raya really addresses this. Women, she says, and I totally agree, habitually find fault with themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And so, first of all, you have this idealization of women, which is dominated by a male industry and has been since it began. And so women's beauty, the male gaze, has been commodified and co-opted and It's something that we just can't really escape or we haven't been able to escape because we're now really just taking a hard look at this. But we've been involved or we've been a product of this type of media for several generations now. Let's talk about the male gaze real quick, because we actually spoke about this in our panel. And it was so fascinating to start to look at how women throughout throughout history, really, and still today, go through the world always with the idea that they're being looked upon by a man. So how does that affect how we move in the world if it's constantly in response to a male's approving gaze? This is a really interesting concept that Soraya talks about and we talked about in our panel. Because we are always aware of the gaze, right? The gaze has been happening through art and male artists for a very long time. And that was something that one of our panelists, Sarah Fisher, talked a lot about and went through a little bit of art history and how women have been portrayed. And then, of course, when media happens, it's just, it's just an extension of that. And so we've become aware of our space. Just we, when we walk into a room, we are aware of who is looking at us. And that gaze has been so internalized for women that it's what Soraya calls self-objectification and self-surveillance. We then become the policers of our own bodies, of our own facial expressions, expressions of our emotions. Because being angry, first of all, isn't traditionally beautiful, right? Women aren't supposed to be angry because women aren't supposed to not be pretty. I was just thinking, I remember... You know, because I've always been a real emotional person my entire life, and I never had a problem expressing my emotions or my anger, really, because that was acceptable in my home. And I remember my mother would say things like, you know, that expression, if you're going to continue that expression or that emotion, it's going to be permanently frozen on your face, you know? And so from a young age, I was told that I can't have certain emotions. 
because of what they were doing to my appearance. Yeah, I think I was told that too. Also, this self-policing, you know, we've been talking about the internalization of beauty standards for a while. I think that Naomi Wolf's beauty myth was very instrumental in getting us to start start having these conversations. But women are still wrapped up in this, even as woke as we are, right? And it manifests in so many different ways. I mean, during our panel discussion, we had a woman stand up and talk about eating disorders. I mean, women are still dealing with eating disorders. We're still dieting. We're still walking through the grocery store and having these images of beautiful women in every magazine rack, not only showing us what a beautiful woman should look like, but telling us what diets we should be on, what products we should be consuming. So we definitely have to ignore that. But the fact that it's still making money, the fact that it's still out there being produced is problematic. So we're still fighting this fight and we're suppressing our anger when we don't conform. I mean, I suppressed my anger for many years because it took me a really long time. It wasn't until probably I took a women's class in college where anyone even asked me to challenge this. I mean, I spent a very long time when I was young looking at my father's Sports Illustrated magazines, looking at the women in the bathing suits, comparing myself to them and working out excessively to try to be like them. And that's still another problem. Women work out excessively. I mean, do women really want this, all these pressures to be beautiful? And it's interesting being in the South and seeing the way that women prepare themselves to go out into the world compared to maybe even the Bay Area, I, which is slightly more progressive and, and women present themselves differently, some women. I find it really interesting being here and seeing the amount of makeup on women's faces. We can get into the, all the various ways in which and all the trends that women get involved with to make themselves beautiful. And I don't want to say necessarily that that's a problem because women deserve to feel good. And there's line. I mean, where do you draw the line between some eyeliner and some fake eyelashes? I mean, where do you draw the line between lip gloss and lip color? I mean, they're all ways in which women things that women apply to their faces in order to feel better about the way that they look. Well, we're talking about, you know, the face all the way to the body, all the way to the dress. And I think that there are, there are a lot of expectations on women that don't exist for men. And that can be really, that's frustrating on a, on a deep level. That inequality is frustrating. It's aggravating. Why do I have to spend all this time and money shaving, plucking, applying, dressing, and my male counterpart doesn't? Well, not only does he not do it, but he complains about how long it takes you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know mine does. Like, why are you, you know, why are you taking so long? Let's just go. Can't, he says things like, can't you just go? You know, and I might not have even looked at my hair. And I can't, you know, that the answer to that question is, no, I want to just go. I want to be free like you. I want to just walk out the door in whatever, but I can't. And that's a real thing. And I, of course, I could, you know, anyone can say to me, well, you, you know, you choose, but I have real identity wrapped around what I look like. And because we have I mean, there's real power in what you look like. I think there's a real 
truth there. But I do think there is something here about what is beautiful. And my experience in the South versus my experience in the Bay Area has, sh has shown me a lot, actually. And it's really fascinating. I find it fascinating because there is a culture here where heavy makeup and dyed hair and hairlessness and certain kind of fashion that's very feminine in nature is what people find attractive. And then in the Bay Area, there is a culture that's different. Women are not shaving their armpits. They're not shaving their legs. They don't wear makeup. And they wear different clothes. And when I, I actually find that really attractive, personally. Oh, well, I do too. But I don't think it's just in the Bay Area. I think there are pockets of women like that here. It's just not the dominant culture here. Right. And perhaps... You know, that might also be the difference between maybe like the industry and professional women in the workplace and then women in different kinds of uh, work spaces where they can be more casual. Do you think that's maybe what's happening too? Yes. And what, what I see for myself is that depending on the environment, depending on the culture, depending on what's normal for that community, your definition of beautiful can change. I've seen it change for myself. Now I see no makeup, um, you know, natural beauty as actually being more beautiful than all this applied, you know, f maybe not false, but all this applied beauty, external right. material beauty. I, I, I've shifted. And so that's why I'm saying like, it's, what is beautiful is culturally determined. And I think that if we start to, as a culture, shift some of this stuff, then women can feel more free in a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what the early 60s movement was really all about, was liberating women from the cosmetic industry, liberating women from their bras and their hair straighteners and all of these different things that they were doing. And then somehow or another, we instead of moving forward with that and continuing that, we take several steps backwards. And now we are still faced with some of the same issues, you know, this necessity to wear cosmetics, to glam up, to have implants, breast implants, butt implants, Botox implants. And we see a lot of women in the community here, at least I see walking around in these really thick, tall wedges trying to make themselves taller. You know, and I always tell my partner, I'm like, you know, you have no idea because I am always commenting on shoes, shoes in movies, high, you know, women who wear high heel shoes. And for those women who wear high heel shoes, I, you know, I apologize, but I do have a strong opinion about this because high heel shoes do not allow women to run, first of all. And if you need to run and save your life in a life-saving situation, what are you going to do? And it also makes women vulnerable. Now somebody has to save you because A, you can't even run in your shoes. You can barely walk. And then there's all kinds of back problems that women, when you get older, you know, have. I saw my mother wear high heel shoes to work every day, and then she had back problems. Men don't have to put on high heel shoes. They are free to run. And I think that's significant when women do things that limit their body's capabilities, when they have long fingernails and they can't pick something up and grasp hold of it. And that's how I feel about you know. makeup 
And that's how I feel about doing your hair. I mean, if you're wearing makeup or if you have your if you have your hair like, you know, done by a stylist that you do every week or something, whatever those um, volumizer kind of things that people do. I don't know. Anyway, basically, women are less likely to go jump in a pool or go, you know, jump in a, 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 a game, a sports game or something, or go get sweaty or go outside or just be in nature. Like, we're limited because, oh, we don't want to mess up our hair. We don't want to mess up our makeup or something, you know, or we yeah. can't run because we're wearing heels or a dress or a skirt. Absolutely, it's limiting. It's very limiting. And that's when I really have a problem with the standards of dress for women is when it impedes our ability to move in the world and accomplish things and get things done. And when it makes us more vulnerable to then need the assistance of our male counterparts who aren't limiting themselves in that way. Soraya Chamali says something. I like the word that she's pulling from another study, which is cosmetic, cosmetic panopticism which she says encourages women to discipline themselves and is a form of obedience to patriarchy. And we can see this in the porn industry. Chamali talks about the porn industry, like many other authors advocating for women's rights, that the porn industry is a big part of the problem. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that want to believe that the porn industry is liberating for women and that there's porn out there now for women. But there's also a lot of porn out there that still is the same kind of porn that we've been watching for, for some of us, um, for a full generation that has influenced our sexuality. And so when women talk about porn or have any sort of judgment or criticism, we're oftentimes labeled as prude. And Chamali talks about that. And if we can't really talk about it, if we can't look at porn critically and how it affects our lives and our relationships, then again, that's another source of anger for women because we are suppressing it in order to avoid being seen as prudish, right? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, if you're not upset by porn, then you're not paying attention or you're not in touch with your emotions because porn really portrays a certain kind of sexy, a certain kind of sex. And frankly, that's not reality for hardly anyone. And when we watch porn, we get a definitely a skewed idea of what intimacy looks like. And then what happens? Women are disappointed. Women are angry. I think men are disappointed too. I think a lot of men struggle with what they're seeing in the porn and what they actually have in a partner. And I know from my own personal experience and also from talking to other women that the expectation as much as men or porn consumers want to say that they can easily distinguish between the two, that they can compartmentalize is the word that I've heard many times. There is still an expectation that the partner look like, perform like, what they're fantasizing about and that they bleed into one another. What you consume bleeds into what you think, how you feel, what you expect from others. There's, and I think that to not see that is a dissociation. People are just like in the food industry and just like many other industries. We want to consume. We want the right to consume. We don't want that to be taken away. And so in order to do that, sometimes we have to dissociate 
And I think that that's really dangerous for women when we're talking about women's empowerment and women's self-esteem and how they feel about their bodies and how they feel about their bodies with the lights on while they're having sex. Yeah. We're not even going to talk about sex trafficking, but the older we get, the younger these women in the porn industry get. These are young girls. And if you're not angry about it, I think there's something wrong with you. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's how I feel. I mean, the numbers are out there. Jamali talks about it. It's obvious. It's what I'm trying to say is the older that we get, the more that we know. It's hard not to be angry about the porn industry because young girls are being trafficked, sold, coerced into an industry against their will, and they're being objectified, sexualized like this for all the world to see. How is that not frustrating and angering for a woman to see a younger woman having to go through something like this? And then when you become a mother or a parent of these young girls, Then you think about, oh, that could be my child. And then suddenly people start to wake up and say, oh, wow, we don't want it to be my child. So, yeah, I mean, these are things that we really need to look at as a culture. I think that this emphasis or this requirement to just kind of leave porn alone because that's the untouchable thing that a lot of people don't want to talk about. I think that that's very dangerous and that we need to look critically and perhaps on our show have much more perspectives about the sex industry in general, because I don't want to marginalize sex workers or anything like people who are willingly consenting to sex. I also don't want to, or I'd at least like to have more of a conversation on here about how, how some people actually find porn educational, because the other half of this is we have a lot of young adults, a lot of young people in general whose parents are scared to talk to them about sex. And I think that's probably feeds into the industry even more. Um, they start looking for information about sex through porn because we just don't have a lot of really good sex education. And most of that porn is women being objectified, sexualized. Well, there's a lot more porn out there now. I think that if you're looking for porn for women, you can find it. But what are men looking for? Are men looking for porn for women? Women are looking for porn for women. So Anybody can create a safe space for themselves in porn and say, oh, well, you know, we have all these options. But then we enter into relationships with men who are probably not looking at porn for women. And now we have to engage in a relationship with them and their relationship to porn. And I think on some level, we really recognize that a lot of our relationships have some connection to porn in some way. Another reason why we're angry. (laughs) Which is why we need to look at it, which is why we need to not shut down these conversations, which is why we need to not accuse people of being prudish when they have something to say about it. And so, yeah. Or if you're angry about it, that's okay. I'm not letting Amaya be angry about this porn, am I? (laughs) If you're angry about it, that's okay. And if porn doesn't anger you, fine. But let's let people talk about why it upsets them and listen. This is what Chamali is, is urging us to do. So this is a great place for us to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a few more points in Chamali's book, her chapters on angry bodies, the caring mandate, and mother rage. So you're listening to Fem South, and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to Them South Podcast. Amaya and I are talking about Soraya Chamali's book, Rage Becomes Her. Fem South is a podcast dedicated to empowering women in the South. We also have a local book club and we host events in our area to support women, to educate women, and to empower women to be the change that they want to see in the world. And this book that we're discussing right now is a really good one because we are talking about women's anger, how to validate women's anger, and how to transform our anger and use our anger as fuel for the change that we want to see in the world. And so from here, I really want to move into the other part of uh, these two chapters, which is angry bodies. I love this chapter so much because I think that women don't really fully realize how much we suppress anger, how much we transfer anger and distribute anger in different ways in our bodies and turn anger into other more acceptable emotions like sadness, anxiety, and depression. Because we don't really ever get too upset with women when they display sadness. In fact, we expect that as a part of their emotionality, but we don't allow women to express anger. And so women have, I mean, we have persecuted women, burned women, institutionalized women, trivialized women's emotionality for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it makes perfect sense that we're still doing that. But We've also turned it into more acceptable forms of emotion like sadness and pain. She talks a great deal about pain in the body and how we experience and ignore pain in our bodies. It's not really the emotion that's the problem. It's the unexpressed emotion that's the problem. Emotions are energy. They need to move. And when we suppress anger, it gets stuck in the body. And this is where a lot of the somatic problems, these body aches and pains come into play because we're not properly allowing the emotions to move through us because we've silenced, shamed, suppressed these emotions as being wrong. And then they come out in these other ways that Chamali talks about, more acceptable ways. Well, I'm not angry, I'm sad. I'm not angry, I'm depressed. I'm not angry, I'm, I'm anxious about something. But what would it look like if women actually said, I'm angry, I'm angry. How many times do we hear that from women versus men? Think about it in our lives. It's interesting. I love Soraya's uh, discussion about the way in which we are trained at a very young age to be stoic, to, to be the ones who sacrifice to endure the kind of labor that we've that we do all of these different things that we've been conditioned at a very young age to ignore and disassociate our bodies from our mind our emotions from the way that they feel in our bodies so when we experience pain a lot of women just push it down ignore it got to get on through the day got to do all my tasks don't want to complain this is a place of intersection for not only gender, but for race and class. If you don't have a good healthcare plan, if you are struggling with money, then you are making choices about whether or not to even go to the doctor's office and seek help, whether or not to acknowledge that pain on a real level. You're making choices about um, what kind of preventive measures you can afford, whether you can afford 
to take a yoga class, whether you can afford to get a massage, whether or not you can afford to really start taking the self-care that we're demanding in a lot of these communities, self-care, right? How does that look for people who are struggling with money? How does that look for women of color when they walk into an office and their experiences, their feelings of pain in the body are trivialized even more so perhaps than white women? So I think this is a really great point that she's making in the book about our bodies and how we can't even fully advocate for our bodies, especially if we have these other barriers in place. And building on that race and class, this is a problem for white women not being able to express their emotions, but it's even more of a problem for women of color and women in lower socioeconomic classes. I mean, that's when it gets really you know, risky, or that's where, when it gets really unacceptable is when these women express their emotions. So, I mean, this is, this is a big thing. This is a big deal. And so moving from the body, then I'd like to also then now move into egalitarianism in the home and talk about women and domestic work and motherhood in these areas, because One of the reasons why I think that we ignore our bodies, ignore our pain, is because we're also doing so much work in the home. We have so much responsibility in the home that we don't have time to tune in oftentimes. And Soraya talks about what she calls the caring mandate. And that is essentially that... According to her statistics, 85% of women do the housework, the cooking, the home maintenance, and the care work. Married mothers do three and a half times as much core housework. Men engage in, according to her statistics, more activities and relaxation and entertainment 35% of the time that women are doing chores. So women are finding less and less time to take care of themselves, to do the things that they need to do in order to tune into their bodies, in order to even address some of these issues that we're really talking about. Well, I think you can speak from a personal standpoint about your responsibilities as a mother, as a single mother for a while, as a working mother, and what that was like for you emotionally. Can you speak to that a little bit, Lee? Uh, yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. As a, as a mother, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for parents in general to raise small children. But oftentimes, and in my personal experience, a lot of that work fell on my shoulders and I felt very overwhelmed by it. I felt like I didn't have as much help from my partner as I should have. I felt like the emotional responsibility fell on me in so it's not just the physical labor but it's the emotional labor and i felt very isolated so women are doing all this work in the home they are doing a larger portion than the men and they are isolated in the home so a lot of times women are don't have an outlet and they don't have anybody to talk to and And if that's if they're married and have a partnership, and then there's women that are doing it completely on their own and perhaps working multiple jobs. I did that for a little while as well. And that's really difficult too, because then you have to start seeking help from other people. You have to start asking for help. You have to be vulnerable in a way that a lot of women are not comfortable doing. 
because our society just really isn't geared for really raising children. And we've talked about this on another podcast. I've talked about this already, but the privatization of the home is really is a really big problem, especially when it's the women who are and the women and the children who are in the home primarily doing that work. Part of the second wave feminist movement was really about advocating for more childcare as women stepped more into the workforce they needed support with childcare and that still hasn't happened it still hasn't happened and women now are working as much as men and they're doing all of this home labor the responsibilities for women have only gotten more intense and i really love the word that or the word that Soraya uses which is the caregiver syndrome So what ends up happening is women are doing unpaid domestic labor, as we know. But according to statistics, women make up more than 90% of paid domestic labor. So not only is this happening in the home, but then in the workforce, women are making up the majority of the paid labor as well, this type of work, caring for others. And those are some of the lowest paying jobs out there, the work that women are doing in the workforce, teachers, nurses, healthcare providers, end-of-life care providers, house cleaners. This domestic labor needs to be seen as what it is, essential for our society and, and given the due respect that it deserves in terms of support and money. And she talks about this kind of work. This work is hard. It's emotionally draining. You know, this is one of the things we really wanted to talk about on our panel, but that we didn't get to was how women are bearing the weight of responsibility for the emotional well-being of the family and also in relationships. We see more women involved in self-help. We see more women in our community in our yoga workshops and our yoga classes. There's usually only one, maybe two men in these classes, right? Women are doing the work. They're trying to better themselves. We're trying to support each other. But there is a weight to that in the relationships that she's talking about that contributes to resentment and anger and passive-aggressive tendencies that I think is really important to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at some point, we're going to get upset when we are the ones giving all of this support, trying to do the work for the family and not getting the same in return. Resentment is bound to occur. And what would it look like if we could just say, I'm angry, I need help, but we're not actually taught to ask for help and to acknowledge our anger. And so it goes unspoken and we suppress it or we sublimate it into other things. And I think this is really important when we talk about family management, women's reproductive rights and reproductive justice in You know, we've already done a podcast on this, so I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I think it's really important, especially considering what's happening now in Alabama and southern states and across uh, the United States right now with abortion rights. It is so critical for women to be able to manage when they want to become mothers, when they want to take on these roles as caregivers, and to decide not to if they choose to. Because as she points out, and I think many, many women have experienced, if we don't have this control over our lives then that's going to and does turn into depression, anxiety, and suicide, higher rates of suicide among women. Chamali says, 
access to abortion and also birth control as the standard bearer of reproductive rights is vitally important. But she also says it's insufficient, and she talks about a different framework, one that includes reproductive justice because it is more comprehensive and inclusive. She says of reproductive rights that it, quote, has and often still fails to recognize the needs and rights of women whose choices are sometimes severely constrained by race, class, gender identity, economics, or disability. And so, and so this is really important when we're talking about egalitarianism in the home to look at also reproductive justice, to also look at race and class and how um, women are affected by this threat to take our reproductive rights away from us. I'd like to read one more quote from her. She says, quote, Studies conducted in multiple countries show that women who were denied the right to decide if and when to become mothers experience greater sadness, stress, anxiety, anger, and guilt. They are two to three times as likely to develop depression and anxiety. Women denied abortions are far more likely to live in poverty and with long-term economic insecurity than women whose desire to end a pregnancy is respected. And that's a great stopping point. We couldn't cover everything in this book in this short period of time, and we are going to talk more about race, class, and sexual identity next month when we read Audre Lorde's collection of essays and speeches in her book, Sister Outsider. I mean, she has several amazing speeches about women's anger that I'm excited to talk about. Also, we have separated our discussion into two parts. The next part of this discussion is going to really be about how to actually engage in our own anger and engage in other people's anger, how to be angry and how to receive anger. Because we've really been having a lot of intellectual conversations about anger, but how do you actually apply what we're talking about in your daily relationships? And Amaya and I, um, during this next episode, are really going to talk about how we have been practicing these new forms of communication to help deal with anger in our own person and in our relationship with each other. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thank you, Soraya Chamali, for writing this book. If you want to learn more about FemSouth, please go to our website, femsouth.com. You can access our podcast episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play. Subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and give us some feedback and comments because we really value what you guys are thinking and experiencing as you're listening to us. And then if you want to follow us on Instagram, that would be great as well, and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe on our website to our newsletter so you can stay up to date with all the events, workshops, classes, and new podcasts that we're putting out each month. Thank you for listening. Until next time, you're on Fem South. South.